Hello and welcome back to the Oxford Policy Pod. I'm your host, Elsa Katz. Have you ever wondered what self-power meant in the context of a rising China? How does China define and exercise its self-power, particularly in the cultural, trade and media realms? And are these strategies successful? How does China see its position as a regional and global power? And what are the opportunities and challenges facing Western states and majority world states when engaging with China? In today's episode of Oxford Policy Pod, we're going to cover all of these topics and more. We are fortunate to be joined by three distinguished experts who will help us understand these important questions. First, we'll dive into the key trade and business implications of soft power and how to build trust with Chinese stakeholders. Then we'll take a look at the role of media in shaping China's soft power strategy. And finally, we'll discuss soft power in creative industries with a specific focus on China's film diplomacy. Let's dive in. Today, we have the privilege to host Mr. Andrew Kaney. Andrew has over 25 years experience advising companies and governments in China. He's the founding director of the UK National Committee on China, Great Britain's leading educational platform strengthening decision-making and facilitating dialogue on China-related affairs. He's also a senior associate fellow at Royal United Services Institute and was previously managing partner at Booz and Companies Greater China and in charge for Asian Government Advisory with Tony Blair Associates. Graduate of Harvard Business School and Cambridge University, his areas of focus relate to China's development and economic diplomacy and its influence across Asia and globally. So, Andrew, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Elsa. It's great to be here. So, to start, I'd like to set up the context for our listeners and ask you your views on soft power generally, what it is, and it's, is it an important part of China's domestic and foreign policy, and how would it exercise it as of today? I think when we talk about soft power, we go back to the original definition that Joseph Nye at, at Harvard talked about. It's shaping or influencing others to do something rather than forcing them to do it, it's attracting them to do it, uh, rather than the hard power, be it of military or, or economic might, and was adduced in particular in, in the context of America and the appeal of American culture and American values around the world. So if we turn to China, uh, I think we could first start by saying China has been, uh, China's rise, economic rise over the past 40 years has a lot of fairly hard elements about it. And I'm not, I'm talking about economics here rather than uh, military and defense. It's looking at the sheer scale of growth. It's, It's simple, important things, better living standards, better housing, better food, better healthcare, people. And this sense of China as an attractor, as something that people are looking towards, hasn't been so much front and center. But I think that started to change over the past five to 10 years. And indeed, around around 10 years ago, uh, the Chinese government said we need to build China's soft power. And Xi Jinping has been saying the same thing. So on that on that front, blurring the line between hard and soft power, I, I want to go back to your article that you co-wrote in 2007 um, called Evolution on the Global Stage. You highlighted Chinese businesses' lack of soft power and particularly predicted that Chinese companies will mimic American and South Korean companies and leverage their domestic strength and reputation to expand internationally. How has it evolved in the past 15 years? 
Yeah, I, I think there's been some progress, but there's also been a more difficult uh, geopolitical backdrop now in the past five plus years to the growing internationalization of Chinese companies. Uh, if we look at this area of soft power in the corporate space, it is a lot around having attractive branding, having a, a buzz factor for consumers. A classic example might be to compare Apple as it was, as it is now, and as it was a few years ago with Samsung Electronics of five or 10 years ago when Samsung made very good phones, but there was no real wow factor. I think Samsung has developed a lot on that. Now, if we think about Chinese companies, there are still very few who are doing that outside of China. Within China, there are different questions. Chinese companies have become increasingly competitive and appealing to Chinese consumers and seen as being the, the cool companies to do business with. But internationally, uh, as well as domestically, one I would pick out is Xiaomi, the Chinese mobile phone and indeed other consumer electronics company that really has built a, a fan base, has built a community and generated tremendous excitement around itself, which shows that this can happen. And globally, perhaps the Chinese company that has created the most uh, soft power or uh, attractive feel on its own is TikTok. Paradoxically, many people don't even know that TikTok is a Chinese company, but it's a real phenomenon across continents, around countries with millions and millions of people engaging with it, creating content. And that shows that this is not something that only a Western company can do or only a Korean company can do. Chinese companies can very much do this. What is not there is the read across from TikTok as a attractive, cool company to it's China and China is an exciting, great place because it's Chinese. And a lot of that has to do with the political context at the moment that TikTok or ByteDance, the, the, the parent company, uh, is more concerned that it may get banned. Indeed, President Trump did try to ban it in the US because it's Chinese, rather than trumpeting the fact that this is a next generation Chinese company that's doing exciting things around the world. That's, that's very interesting. And the Xiaomi example goes back to, to your prediction about being more sophisticated technologically um, as the world's largest mobile phone population and, and kind of leveraging that. And it also goes back to the, the Soft Power 30 index that ranked enterprise and digital as the lowest. Enterprise being 21st out of 30 and digital being the last component of the sub-indices in, in, in soft power. So, so I... I was curious if you have any thoughts on that and why do you think that's the case as opposed to something like culture, which is ranked pretty high? I think there are, there are a couple of dimensions. We start on, on the corporate side. It reflects again to the fairly limited internationalization of Chinese companies in the developed world. And so one would see in the UK, maybe Bank of China, Huawei and mobile phones, but there are not so many car electric vehicles I think China is leading the world in electric vehicle production but those we don't yet see those Chinese auto brands revolutionizing the automotive market across Europe so there's just a relatively limited number of companies in the developed world that have a presence and many of them are in the more traditional industries uh, I'm thinking particularly financial services in that regard 
as compares with culture, and, and I think here we, we probably need to unpick, and maybe putting too much weight onto the survey, but un, unpick what we mean by culture. I think it is fair to say that Chinese culture is, is, is widely acknowledged around the world in the in the broadest sense, as one of the great ancient civilizations and cultures of the world. The idea of you know, celebrating Chinese holidays, marking the, what we call the Chinese New Year, the Lunar New Year, and Chinese food, some Chinese emperors and history. Those sort of aspects are fairly commonplace and embedded in our sort of cultural discourse in the West as well, and I think becoming more so. What we're not seeing much of uh, certainly in the past 10 years or so, is contemporary culture. We're not in the West very aware of what Chinese contemporary culture is. Uh, Professor Rana Mitra of, of Oxford University t- talks about the fact that the Chinese will know about Downton Abbey or, or the top TV programs in the UK and the US, but the, the British do not know what the Chinese equivalents are. So that's simply a matter of, matter of familiarity. But it is also a question of what are are there interesting films coming out what what's coming out from china these days and and 20 years ago the situation was quite different there was a lot more art house cin- cinema coming out of china and now because of the uh, political environment in china that's not really happening but we see it coming naturally from countries uh, in particular such as south korea yeah south korea is, is is a very interesting example in in terms of more symmetry of knowledge of each other cultural industries as opposed to, to China and I, th- I think maybe the other point I'd add on the uh, generally but particularly on this sort of corporate soft power or indeed national soft power is the distinction between the developed world and lower income economies or what might be called the majority world but certainly looking across Africa parts of South Asia the Middle East Central Asia Latin America these are countries firstly where they may be more exposed to some Chinese brands, and they're certainly aware of the Chinese strides of economic development and saying, well, there's, you know, there's a different model here. Xi Jinping is called the China model, but saying let's look at that at least as an alternative. And thinking geopolitically, we also have to say that if you're in an African country or in the Pacific Ocean on an island, yes, you may be skeptical about some of what China is saying and offering, but you're going to be often equally skeptical about what the US is offering. And there's a, a complicated history for many of these countries that says we want to you know, go our own way. What can we take from China? What can we take from the US? Uh, and China is now offering something a bit different. And in that sense, it does have a greater attraction uh, than maybe in some of the developed countries. Yeah, that, that was going to be my next question regarding the Belt and Road Initiative and the expansion of China's diplomatic network and how it fits into its soft power strategy. Could you maybe think of an example of, of success that characterizes that soft power strategy? I, I think it's it's interesting if we talk about the Belt and Road Initiative and unpicking that in, in, in different dimensions and different audience groups. So firstly, the, Del- the Belt and Road Initiative is Often has often been characterized as massive infrastructure spending. And part of the story there is simply that China has been offering uh, lending to fund infrastructure relatively quickly in a way that maybe the multilaterals or other economies have not done. Uh, but Belt and Road has always been broader than that. There are actually, from the start, five pillars to Belt and Road, and infrastructure is just one of them. A lot of them is about trade, 
as about policy and what are called people-to-people links are an important part of that. And under that, we see you know, students going to study in China, certainly pre-COVID. We see greater uh, media flows. We see education. And there is a growing communication about what is happening in China, a great, greater understanding of what's happening in China. There's the aspect of the what's called the digital Silk Road, which is now getting more prominent. So it's less about building bridges. It's more about putting the right internet support in place, Alibaba coming in, Huawei coming in. And all those aspects bring you know, a mixed model. So they bring the benefit of dig- digitization often faster, but they also bring uh, the, the censorship and the uh, media management approach of China, which is then implemented in different ways in different countries. If you have an authoritarian country in Africa, they're quite likely to implement that in a similar way to China, cracking down on dissent. But you don't need to do that. That's, a, in a sense, that local government's choice. And equally on the Belton Road more generally, it's this mixed picture. It's seen as, yes, China's got a big role in this country. It's offering something. And yet we see in a lot of these Belton Road countries now a pushback on China saying, well, you, you promised a lot but didn't deliver or the terms of the deal were not really good enough, we need to renegotiate that, or the, the people in power in a number of countries have been pocketing money from the deals done with the Chinese, which leads then to a question of domestic politics again, so that China has at times become a bit of a political football domestically, be it in Indonesia, Malaysia, Sri Lanka, it's all part of the mix. And so none of these stories are sort of black and white, either success or a negative. There's some 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 positives they get out of it, but it's also a need for the individual countries to work through, and indeed they are in the, in the Philippines, in Malaysia. What is it that we as a country want here, and how can we engage with China on that? Absolutely. And um, on, on the topic of the, the Belt and Road Initiative and kind of engagement with majority world countries, I, I want to shift gears a little bit to education, particularly uh, given your engagement with several think tanks, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, China is estimated to replace the U.S. as an educational powerhouse in 2050. And I was curious to know what, what are the future opportunities to, to promote mutual understanding through civil links. When it comes to majority world countries, China is the largest single provider of university scholarships to students from sub-Saharan Africa, for instance. But what about a strategy with developed countries? Yeah, I I think there is firstly a tremendous importance we need to place on educational links with China and and mutual understanding uh, of the situation. And COVID has really brought some of that to a halt or made some of that very difficult. And so we need to find ways to sort of get that started. And that essentially means China relaxing its quarantine policies as soon as they're able to. If we put that to one side and say that that, that will sort itself out, then we, we do need to look for engagement, which is Chinese students continuing to come here and, and students continuing to go to China. I think that will in it's, it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky landscape in all dimensions. At some sense in education around hard scientific skills and maybe we call that the more um, less advanced scientific skills. That's that's pretty in a sense, straightforward, because it's less political, it's also less sensitive and and competitive. 
we are seeing that you know, research cooperations and more advanced educational exchanges do become more challenging in technologies that can be put to dual use. And then there are cultural exchanges uh, and looking at the arts. Uh, and again, there is a lot that can be done there, but we need to recognize the you know, controlled, politi politicized, uh, censored environment of most university situations in China, which is quite different, and how to engage with that. And, and, and organizations like New York University in Shanghai are, gr are grappling with that. Those uh, the Schwarzman scholars who go to, to Beijing, which is an incredibly valuable experience and, and undertaking. Inevitably, because this is happening in China, the students who go are subject to final approval by the Communist Party. Some people in in the UK or in the West say that's, that's not a good thing. I think we need to be quite open to finding ways in which we can uh, work through things like that. That China is acting in a certain way. We, need, we, the UK, need to protect our interests. China will protect what it does. Let's find a way still to keep communication alive. The challenges at the think tank level now are more around the, the need that the Chinese professors have to get a pre-approval before they can you know, join conferences or have Zoom calls. So I was at a, in, a, in a seminar last week, and we were talking about what is the future for high-level political science research in, in education, given the constraints in China. And does it, is that something that can happen or not? I think that is quite challenging in the current environment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you have founded the UK National Committee on China, which is Great Britain's leading educational platform that aims at actually strengthening decision-making and facilitating that dialogue that, that you just mentioned. Could you speak a little more about that and how you think that we should engage with China in order to build a trusting relationship yep. and collaborate on, on those issues of shared concern? Yeah. So that's exactly what we're trying to do with the UK National Committee on China. Firstly, we have a, a predisposition to engage and discuss with China, and we're all quite concerned by the, you know, the current difficulties, partly COVID-driven, partly political, the difficulties that get in the way of this dialogue and mutual understanding. And mutual understanding doesn't mean we agree with one another. It means that we understand what the other person or the other side is thinking and maybe why they're thinking it. And then we can figure out what to do. And so we, we have a, a predisposition to engagement, not engagement on any terms, but a predisposition to engagement and a sort of rock solid defense of the values we hold dear here in the UK. And that's sometimes a, a challenge and saying, well, can that be done? And I would say so far we're finding it can be done. And we, we, we publish viewpoints on... Uh, a whole range of questions there are around China, some of the positives of what's happening in China, some of the things that uh, we look at and say, we don't, we don't really like that, but you know, that's what China's doing, but let's, let's still talk about that. And we do find continued engagement uh, from the Chinese side on that. While we also highlight areas of uh, less controversy, greater potential and need for cooperation, such as climate, and we had the support of the British government and the support of the Chinese ambassador to the UK, a very successful kickoff to our dialogue between Manchester and Wuhan, looking very specifically at hydrogen technology and how hydrogen technologies can be implemented in urban transportation. That's led to the signing of some MOUs, 
that will be an ongoing process of engagement and discussion at the commercial level, at the uh, regional level, because we do see benefits there. Now, now, as in any adult sort of relationship or business situation, if one side suddenly feels they don't see the benefit from this, the terms of what is happening, then it will stop. And I, I touch on here this phrase win-win, and, and, and win-win um, started off as a phrase which means, yes, both sides win, and that's great, and obviously we should have win-win. Over the time, uh, maybe because the Chinese use the phrase so much, they talk about win-win opportunities, it's become a bit more of a joke or a, a, a wry laugh. People say, well, you know, is it really win-win? Maybe China's getting all the benefit and, and all the rest. And so people almost avoid using the phrase now because it's seen as not serious. And I, and I think that's, that's a mistake because if you have a situation where one side, let's say it's China or let's say it's the UK, is getting all the benefit and the other side is not getting the benefit or is losing, then that isn't a win-win. What one needs to do on each side is figure out, is this a win-win situation? And I think there are areas where that you know, can be figured out. That's what we're finding uh, in the situation I just mentioned about hydrogen. Uh, there may be others where it doesn't work. And in that sense, we should not pursue that approach. I mean, both sides needs to be in the interest of both sides. But to figure that out, you need the understanding to actually even reach that discussion. And if you just cut off all dialogue, and if you don't have these exchanges, both sides are going to be in a, in a much worse situation. That's fascinating, particularly the hydrogen project, which is very exciting, taking place at the city level and generally finding issues of shared concern and complementary skills to, to engage in projects. I just wanted to go back to what you said about kind of that safe space and that trusting relationship that you were able to create. Is there kind of a leading advice you would give to, to an organization that's trying to, to do that with Chinese high officials mm. um, or other stakeholders? I, th I think what's important is to be very realistic about what the topic is you're engaging on. And if one does, you know, an extreme, I think this is probably fair to say it's an extreme, on the, they come together. On the one hand is, you know, climate, where some of the most hawkish people on China in the West will say, we still need to engage with China on climate. And then you go at the other extreme to the situation in Xinjiang and the reports there, where uh, people will say, this is everything we've seen is this is something which is, is truly awful and it's not something where we're going to agree that this is a wonderful thing and understand where you are on that and i say they come together because then one gets the question of a lot of solar panels of solar technology actually producing in xinjiang and cotton and things like that so one needs to identify where one is and then to have a private initially private discussion going both ways saying this is where we're coming from and are each is each side able then to have that this you know willing to have that discussion on those terms and if they don't want to either side that's fine too so in our discussions we will raise not in an, in an insulting way but in a very clear way the whole range of, of questions and then we'll say do we want to proceed on this or not and yes they do other areas you know maybe not but we need need to work through that and also recognize again Maybe the distinction between individuals on the other side and the structure that they're operating and the structure that people are operating on in the West as well, in that you know, certain things that might happen in the UK will 
suddenly hit the press and get a great deal of criticism uh, as well. We both operate in our own sort of media and political environments. Absolutely. So regarding future engagement and opportunities to consider when we talk about Chinese soft power, before we end, I wanted to ask you if there was anything you were looking forward to in the future, any silver lining? What I'm really hopeful for is, though I think it will take a while, is for a reopening of China, or there is more face-to-face meetings and, and discussions, because Again, both sides, I'm talking about friends I have in China who receive a certain set of media messages that lead them to more anti-Western positions. And I'm talking to some of the the messages in the West, which when you dig beneath the surface are are not really based on fact. An example here, a lot of talk about the social credit system in China, this idea that everybody's behavior is being tracked and measured and they get a number and this controls people. Uh, which is a complete distortion of what's actually happening in China if you look into it. But there are elements, you know, clearly strong elements of surveillance, but that's not what's happening. And so trying to get again to what's really happening in the UK, what's really happening in China, and much of that requires face-to-face and fairly large-scale travel, not something where it's a number of set-piece meetings between people. And I, I really hope that can come back. Yeah. I hope so, too. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming today. We were so honored to have you. Thank you very much. Today, we have the honor to host Zili Wang, who is a Beijing-based editor and reporter at the international desk of Taishin Media, one of China's most respected news magazines. A Chinese media expert on geopolitics and international relations, she has expertise on China's role in the Korean Peninsula and the Middle East. She covered the Inter-Korean Summit in 2018 and the Singapore and Hanoi summits between the U.S. and North Korea shortly thereafter, providing firsthand reporting on the ground for her readers in Beijing and across the world. She earned her BA and MA in international politics from Jianmin University of China and is currently a Taishin Media Fellow at the Blavatnik School of Government. Zili, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So to set the context for our listeners, could you start by telling us a little bit at the basic level, why is soft power such an important part of China's domestic and foreign policy and, and how does it exercise it? Sure. So if you look at like Chinese uh, official statement on soft power campaign, it really centers on the concept of Chinese dream, where you find this uh, big push on achieving this great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. So I think like soft power is also part of this national rejuvenation because as we know that China now has become the second largest economy in the world and it is time now to also increase its cultural appeal as well. And um, also it really, there's a need to help the world to understand this new China and to understand that China is not the one that we thought in the before, like backwards and conservative, but also like friendly, diverse, vibrant socialist country. So I think there's a need for that. And also, I mean, in this era of globalization, I think China has begun to realize that uh, to be recognized as a global power is not only about like your military power, but also about economic and soft power, because I mean, like cultural and economic exchanges 
are inevitable, right? So in this globalization era, and also um, we have to like reshape this kind of、uh, global image of China,、uh, and. And China feels like we have our own things to offer because, in addition to these widely accepted Western values like rule of law, like democratic principles, we also have some cultural resources from our traditions like harmony, like benevolence, like wisdom, honesty, loyalty, and something like that. So I think that really helps us to understand what is the new China and how complicated and how you know diversified China is today. Absolutely.、Um, so, just to go back on the point of of culture specifically, there are some comprehensive soft power index, such as Soft Power Thirty by Portland, that ranks China twenty seventh out of thirty countries in twenty nineteen. But among the six sub indices, culture, which includes high culture, pop culture, and the global reach of the cultural outputs, it is ranked. Really high. So, why do you think that's the case? And can you provide maybe examples of cultural products that told China's story well to the world? And what made these products successful in in advancing China's soft power globally? Well, to be honest, I'm a bit surprised about the ranking on culture that is、um, very、uh, high on the ranking on comparing to other metrics. So. I guess, like, I'm not very familiar with the Western audience, but at least for some audience from the Asian countries, especially from South Asian country, I know that、uh, many of the Chinese TV dramas,、uh, specifically costume dramas and romance dramas, are very, you know, popular among those audience. I think one of the reason maybe we share like a similar、uh, cultural tradition. And we have like similar like family struggles and family structure as well, and those are the elements that are presented in this drama. And also, I I found a very interesting trend is that there are some TV shows with very strong female roles that are becoming more and more popular. Um,、uh, this is not only in like costume drama, but also like you know dramas uh presenting like modern China such as. Uh, there's a TV show in 2020 which is called Nothing But Thirty. So it's a drama about three girls in urban China, but they are from very different backgrounds and with very different personalities. But they eventually become friends and they have to face a lot of challenges in their lives from family, from love, and and also from work、uh, while they are turning 30 years old. So this is a drama really about the anxiety and struggle that many of the urban females are facing right now in China, and it is also I think widely accepted in many of the Asian countries as well. So I think maybe this is because we are facing very similar problems, especially the women in those countries are facing very similar challenges. Um, but I also think that maybe we can make extra efforts in, you know, I mean, China to produce these kind of cultural products that can really present this、um, modern China, this urban life, because there are also criticism inside China about these kind of TV dramas are not very close to the reality on the ground, and they are so up in the clouds, they are not reflecting the real lives of normal people. So if we can make efforts in this area, maybe, and also find better platforms、um, to have it to promote it to a broader audience, not only in Asia but also in Western worlds, maybe that would be a good way to, you know,、uh, really push our soft power campaign.
That's very interesting. The power of shared values and shared concerns and yeah. attractiveness of cultural products. And even though culture is highly visible and an effective uh, touch point, international perceptions and public opinion of China mm -hmm. is heavily influenced, uh, as we know, by the country's approach to global affairs. So recent events such as U.S.-China trade war, blacklisting of Huawei by the U.S., human rights issues, pro-democracy demonstrations in Hong Kong put pressure on global perceptions of China um, and can lead to increasingly unfavorable views of China across the world, particularly in Western countries. Um, and so I want to turn back to your experience as mm. a journalist of the international desk of one of the most reputable media outlets in China, Taishin Media. So could you tell us a little bit about how China leveraged state-run media to advance its exercise of soft power and create favorable views of China, and how privately funded media like Caixin differs from state-run media and contributed to the exercise of soft power vis-a-vis -vis international audience. Does it bolster China's credibility in other countries to advance soft power strategy? Yeah, so I, I totally agree with you on that in the sense that China needs uh, to strengthen its own voice in the international stage. In China, we call it, we have to strengthen our discourse power in the international arena. And I think like Chinese government is beginning to realize the importance of this issue. So we can see there's a lot of investment in establishing like foreign language news outlets to reach a broader audience. For instance, China's state television broadcasting news service, CCTV, has actually uh, launched its English branch, CGTN, as many may have already known right now. And it really broadcasts in six channels, uh, including two in English and others in Arabic, in French, Russian, and Spanish. And also like um, China's primary news agency, Xinhua Agency, has more than a hundred foreign bureaus around the world. So I think these are all of the efforts that made by the state-run media to really uh, to expand their reach to uh, audiences from all over the world. But um, there are challenges as well, because like if we can see like many of these state-run media, they also have like Twitter accounts right now. But uh, this kind of communication is good, but you have to have a mechanism of feedback. So in order to uh, form this kind of uh, conversation, you have to let feedbacks come back to you and you have a healthy conversation with this audience. So I think in this regard, uh, there are things that we can do more in order to improve this kind of conversation. And also, like um, like the media group I work for, Caixin Media, we are privately run and privately funded media in China. So I think we have our uh, advantages in this regard because like Caixin in 2016, we established a separate uh, company called Caixin Global. So it's really our English language outlet. And uh, apart from this English language website, we also uh, are very present in many of the international conferences. Like, for example, we have, uh, we have hosted many side events in high-level summits such as G20. And, and maybe because... Uh, some of China's state-run media, they have their, you know, limitations in 
the kind of act activities they can do and also the kind of reporting they can do. But uh, for privately run media group like us, we may have more room to maneuver in this kind of regard. And also, it's not only Caixin is doing this. I don't know whether you know, there's another one, it's called Six Tone. So it is the English uh, branch of um, Chinese media called The Paper. They are based in Shanghai. And Six Tone is also good at you know providing perspectives from Chinese Chinese people's daily life, the daily work, and they are focusing more on the cultural and social events, and maybe sports and something like that. It's it's quite a different angle from what we take at Caixin. So we basically focus on like for example business or political issues or like international events, but they focus more on local stuff. So I think that kind of perspective can also be beneficial to, you know, to present the world about a really diversified China. Yeah, that's that's a six tone is a very good example. Yeah, because it's local and and more cultural. It's it's something that is particularly present on on platforms like WeChat, um, sure, rather than than web based platforms. Um, but hopefully, it sets a trend for increasingly privately funded uh, media that can have good quality reporting, data mm -hmm. transparency, and bolster China's credibility um, when it comes to, to media and cultural products overall. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned particularly the attractiveness within kind of Western powers, mm. um, as opposed to maybe cultural products like TV dramas that were more attractive to um, regional uh, yeah, the global countries. south, maybe the global south, mm. or in Southeast Asia, for instance, which which you mentioned earlier. So, circling back to that, how do you think that China's strategy with majority world countries differ from developed ones, particularly as it relates to kind of the Belt and Road Initiative um, and the expansion of its diplomatic network. And how 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 do you think that fits in, into a soft power strategy, and and how does the strategy even differs from great powers like the United States or states in the region like South Korea? I think it's really an interesting question, also a very difficult one. I think one of the things about China that is very different from U.S. or South. South Korea, some other countries, is that China really emphasizes the attractiveness about its own development model, and that is uh, mainly focused on you know attracting the developing countries. So uh, the kind of initiatives such as Belt and Road Initiative is not only about investment in very giant uh, infrastructure projects in those developing countries, but I think it's also about investment in the human capital, in the uh, social capital. Because through that kind of projects, we bring like Chinese people with those kind of skills and technology to the local communities. And, and we also hire a lot of local workers in the factories there. So it's really about like people-to-people -people connection. But uh, of course, there are problem, problems arise in the process as well. Like if we have not We've, if we do not have very thorough like communication with the local community, I mean with the neighborhoods, then there might be prob problems considering the impact on their local life, on the local environment as well. Those kind of things also exist. So um, 
But another thing I want to mention is that China has invested a lot in hosting this kind of political exchange programs. For instance, uh, I remember I was once uh, invited in Hangzhou in China to attend a dialogue between the China's communist Communist Party and the parties, political parties from Arab world. So it's kind of a political party. Uh, it's kind of an ex exchange of people on the political party level. Uh, and I remember all of these uh, political party leaders from the Arab states. They are coming to Hangzhou and they are really visiting this, um, the headquarters of many of the Chinese tech companies like Alibaba. So it it is also an opportunity for these Chinese companies to showcase their achievements and to you know really have a opportunity to uh, export their products as well. But also through this kind of dialogue, the political leaders from those Arab states can actually learn from CCP about like, for, for example, party organization skills, uh, something like that. So I think this is this kind of uh, interaction is very unique in China as well. It's also one of the ways that China cultivates uh, its um, connections with the political elites from the developing countries. But considering the developed world, I think I'm not, to be honest, I'm not very sure whether we have a very comprehensive strategy uh, target on that. But I would say from my observation, I think sometimes in the Chinese way of, you know, um, presenting itself to the Western audience is really reactive rather than proactive. So usually there are, when there are criticisms uh, or hostility against China or against Chinese development model or against like uh, China's initiative, such as Belt and Road Initiative, there would immediately arise a kind of, you know, pushback. Uh, against this kind of criticism. And I think it is good for Chinese government to rethink about its strategy to engage with the Western audience. Because if you if you only like push back on their criticisms, criticisms rather than, you know, proactively telling your story and to present yourself to them, then it wouldn't be very helpful for them to, to, to understand you. And also because as every country in the world, in China, we also have these nationalist sentiments going on. So actually, these kind of sentiments are making the government more and more difficult to quit this kind of pattern. So they feel like they have to react to the to the outside criticism. And I think it's really created this kind of circle that really hard to break. So I think other from China's side, also for the for the Western side, especially the Western government, maybe can also rethink about how you, for example, the timing and the rhetorics you use when you address China issues. Then you can, you know, really give some room for, for the Chinese side to really, to um, to have a real conversation with you rather than feeling uh, obliged to uh, respond to nationalist sentiments in inside China. So maybe this is a two-way thing, but still there's, there's more to be done in this regard. Thank you for that. Could you maybe talk a little more about how developed countries should engage with China, in, in your opinion, to, to build a trusting relationship and, and collaborate on transnational issues, issues of shared concern, 
and how how do you envision this engagement to to look like on cultural matters? So I will give you a very simple answer. I think I think is to boost this kind of people to people exchange. It's really important because we have seen that this kind of exchange has already been harmed under the COVID pandemic, and and also is taking hostage of the geopolitical、uh, struggles. Between China and the Western world, but people-to-people exchange is really important because if you do not like go to China and see the real China, if you do not make friends with Chinese people, if you do not taste the real, authentic Chinese food, then how can you, you know, love China and you try and want to understand China? So I think this kind of exchange is extremely important. Um, for the outside world, especially、uh, the developed world, to better understand China and to appreciate Chinese nuances, and also if we focus on the cultural matters, so I think、uh, China should、uh, continue to reform its cultural industry, its cultural markets. So. To be more open up, opening up in the future, and to accept more opportunities for collaboration with the Western actors, because we have our own advantage and strength, which is we have this long tradition and very diverse culture. Um, but what we lack is really the technology and maybe the money,、uh, and a very、uh, mature model of production, and that's what the Western.、Um, Sometimes the Western actors can actually provide, so I think this kind of collaboration can be a、um, win-win situation. And and of course we have to have regulation on that. But you can have this kind of practice, and you can open up step by step. I think that's a good way to go. And if you, especially if you consider the cases from our neighboring countries, South Korea, they've be they've done a really good job in this regard. Because like, I think. One of the reasons why South Korea is so successful in their soft power campaign is because they really put state resources into the creative industry. The state support for for these in- industries is really strong, and they are very open to you know. To the kind of collaboration with the Western、uh, platforms, for example, if we see like Squid Game. That is very popular in recent years. It's really a collaboration between、uh, South Korean director and also Netflix,、uh, a Western live streaming service. So this kind of、um, business model can serve as a reference to China as well. And also, I also, because I'm a journalist focused on reporting on Korean Peninsula, and I was actually there to report the. Kim Jong Un summit with、uh, the then South Korean President Moon Jae-in, and one thing strike me the most is that when the summit is、uh, closing, is 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 over, and there will be like a kind of ceremony, and there are、uh, because the summit is hosted by the South Korean government, so、uh, they provide many of the、uh, like dances and songs、uh, in that ceremony, and. And one of the songs are actually from BTS, the very popular boys band from South Korea. It's really pop culture for South Korea, and you can see this kind of you know government support for for their pop culture. So,、um, but but in China, this kind of ceremony we would only like、um, 
remember songs, very traditional songs are played in this kind of, you know, celebration occasions. I, I mean, like the, of course, mm, the two countries have very different local conditions and, and culture um, traditions as well. But I mean, um, the success story from our neighbor can, can deserve as a reference for, for us. And we can really um, rethink about the strategy, especially how to reform our own culture industry. Thank you so much for, for sharing that that example and success story that we can learn from in terms of tr- self-power strategy and something to look forward to in the future in terms of finding complementary skills and areas, mutual areas of interest for collaboration and maybe a larger role of, of privately funded media. So this is a great thing to look forward to and a silver lining. So thank you so much for coming today. Thank and you. It was a privilege. Thank you. you. It's my pleasure. We have the honor to host Dr. Human Chan, who's a researcher, entrepreneur, lecturer, and consultant specializing in international collaboration in the creative and cultural industries, particularly on film. She's the founder of the UK-China Film Collab, an independent nonprofit organization set up to inspire and create film-related collaboration and cutting-edge debate between the UK and Greater China. Its objectives include knowledge transfer, dialogue building, and communication improvement through film-related activities. She's a lecturer in creative and cultural industries at Dumafel University. Dr. Chan, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So to set the context uh, for our listeners, could you tell us a little bit at a basic level why soft power is such an important part of China's domestic and foreign policy, and how does it exercise it? I think it's important. I cannot say um, that I know all the policy or cultural policy or soft power, but I can definitely comment on the film part. And I think Hollywood's success is always something that China would like to achieve. Um, and that's why, briefly, they came up with a term called Hollywood and, and hoping that they can achieve the same impact uh, like Hollywood does across the, um, the world. And I think it's important for them because they realize that this is something that they are behind still um, the Hollywood industry as, as a form of soft power or as a, as a form of markets and industry. And I mean, China is pretty good at catching up in other areas in terms of infrastructure, uh, lifting, lifting a pro- property um, and in other areas, definitely technology and R&D and so on and so forth. But I think in terms of film, this is something that China still care about, from my interpretation, that they would like to have some sort of um, influence uh, or at least to change uh, the image of the culture and the country and perhaps by by extension the government via the presentation of film to an international audience. Very interesting. So China seems to leverage that film diplomacy uh, to advance its exercise of soft power and create a more favorable views of China. Could you provide some examples of cultural products that um, they did so and that were successful in advancing China's soft power globally? Um, So to begin with, film diplomacy is a word that I coined or tried to coin uh, from a theoretical, philosophical conceptualization. Uh, as part of my research and also as a practice by my nonprofit organization. So the government has never really used the word in English or in Chinese uh, in terms of 
film diplomacy, I think is a very speci specialized and specific word. And I have a different meaning um, uh, on that, which I will later elaborate. So I think in terms of soft power in general, um, the export of Confucius Institute is quite a good example uh, around the world in collaboration with different universities. Um, and I think the program that they export by the Confucius Institute is quite generic, nothing very specific, just calligraphy, traditional dancing, uh, traditional like tea ceremony, uh, maybe some of the reading of Confucius philosophy, uh, and and also one of the thing, just like the British Council, is uh, um, language learning. So the Confucius Institute offer language program in collaboration with uh, modern languages departments at different universities in the UK and elsewhere. So that's one of uh, very obvious state-backed example. But film diplomacy, in my view, can can be included as part of the soft power, but it's not um, state-led. The 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 uh, form of film diplomacy that I believe in, or at least I'm trying to exercise as an individual, uh, is a bottom-up initiative. So it started by the citizens who are keen on improved communication and discussion, as well as to facilitate a fairer debate uh, on current affairs, international relations via the medium of film. So that can be collaboration in film productions, development, uh, distribution, exhibition, or any film-related, uh, IP-related business model. But it's purely led by the market and also a civic uh, initiative, in my view. So I think the best version of film diplomacy, uh, from what I see, should be a non-government-led initiative, but uh, practiced by the people, the citizens, whatever they are, who truly love cinema and believe that films are a very good way to generate better dialogue and conversation. So regarding those films in co-productions between the West and China, between the UK and China, or Hollywood and and China, there are, as you said, financial opportunities, and it's led by, by the market. And do you think that it is possible for the story itself to kind of find universal values and cross over between Western and Eastern audiences on a more mainstream scale? Ideally, yes. I mean, we had the history of Bruce Lee, which was a proven evidence that it could work. So Bruce, Bruce Lee from Hong Kong, uh, he went to the United States in his early age, and he went into the film industry. And his films, regardless where you're from, which background, you might be too young to know him, but regardless where you're from, who you are, you know, what, what your religion is, Bruce Lee had that, he had that charisma and magic just to come across with everybody. So I think it is possible. So the Chinese film industry tried to support several celebrity figures or actresses to, to Hollywood and hoping that they could make the same impact. For example, Zhang Ziyi, also uh, some of the other actresses, but they didn't really have the same outcome as Bruce Lee had. So I think it's definitely possible. But what kind of story can cross culture or engage with different type of audience? This is still an, an experiment, an experiment that we are trying to find out a model or a particular type of story. And also by other private companies who are interested in, in this opportunity in the market as well. Very interesting. And so would you say that those, those cultural products and those examples of, of films that, that are experimenting with 
finding kind of common ground, would that be enough to explain why culture specifically in self-power index is ranked uh, the highest when it comes to China? And would you even agree and could explain a little bit why do you think that that would be the case as opposed to other sub-indices, including enterprise, government, engagement, people-to-people, international polling, and so forth? I don't think the credit is down to film or or film as such. I think it's just the most successful uh, on the people's level diplomacy, in my view, is food. Because it doesn't matter wherever you go, you can always find a a Chinese restaurant. And it doesn't matter how political the situation becomes in terms of international relations or potential new Cold War. And I have observed this as well, just like uh, as an interest. I think people still go to Chinatown to consume food, to have um, a meal as a night owl. So I think in terms of food, it's very, it's a very natural way for people to engage, have the first engagement with Chinese culture already. And I'm, I don't know about yourself, but I think people keep going back to have Chinese food. They cannot say no to it because it must be something quite pleasant that the cuisine offers them in an economic way. So I think food maybe is something to do with that. And that's been the food, I think the food culture has been exporting since a long time ago. Whereas film, I don't think it plays that an important part yet, even though it is within the Chinese government's interest and also for individuals' interest for, to, to maximize the market potential. But I don't think film plays that kind of important role yet in terms of diplomacy ranking as a cultural product. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's still a kind of a failure, I think. If you look at the press, we just had a panel Friday about the current British press coverages on Chinese films. I think a lot of the films being that managed to get a space in review and coverage is still very being reported or covered in a very politicized manner. Everything is linked to propaganda. It's very rare to see some films, especially blockbuster films from China, being treated as a film as such without being uh, connected with politics. Mm. And so kind of circling back on that, you, your organization uh, that you founded, the UK-China Film Collab, is specifically focusing on, on film-related collaboration to foster the, this engagement in creative industries, in particular in film. Could, could you tell us a little bit about how those objectives are, are intended to be met in terms of knowledge transfer and dialogue building using film as a medium? I think it's very simple. So anything to do with film and anything to do with the potential to create or to facilitate dialogue and conversation between the two sides, which in the Greater China, which includes Hong Kong, SAR, and also Macau, that we are interested in. So for one of the examples, a very good example was that in 2019, we supported the biggest Charlie Chaplin retrospective exhibition in China collaborating with Hainan, Hainan International Film Festival. And that was the first, uh, the biggest Charlie Chaplin retrospective, even though the films were made in the US, he, he moved to the USA later on, but he's still a very iconic British icon, he's a comedian. So something like that we are very interested in and something that is original. No one has done that before. It's not particularly funded in any funding program, which has a criteria, I think, because I think there are very, there's a great space here for creativity as well in terms of entrepreneurship, curatorial, curation, exhibition, supporting talent, talent development. There's so much can be 
done and so many challenges can be taken up you know for intellectual engagement purposes so i think yeah it's very specialized and then another good example which summarizes uh, our mission quite well is the limited release of a documentary called the six in the uk so for that one we collaborated with picture house uh, which is an independent cinema chain well sorry not independent anymore it's owned by cineworld by an outhouse cinema chain back in uh, last year and this documentary is i think it's a very good summary because it is directed by a British director called Arthur Jones, who went out to China 20 odd years ago, and he's been living in Shanghai, you know, for more than a decade. He has his own production company in Shanghai, and he's a documentary specialist. So the, the film is about the Titanic, the history, and about six Chinese survivors from Titanic and what happened to them afterwards. And I think this is a story that could potentially be interested by audiences from both sides. So that kind of activities and initiatives, I think, summarizes our missions quite well. And and in the end, it's a Chinese production, even though he's British director, but his company is formed and you know registered in China. So it's a it's a Shanghai it's a Shanghai China production rather than a British production. So this specifically relates to Western engagement with China on on film, in order to kind of build a trusting relationship and and potentially through film collaborate on issues of shared concern. Could, could you talk a little more about how film and this collaboration can help solve transnational issues um, and what are kind of the potential opportunities and challenges to, to consider when it comes to soft power and opportunities for engagement rather than a threat from soft power? I don't think, well, in my definition of the film diplomacy, I don't think it can solve any very serious problems and complexity at the moment ongoing but I think what it can do is to contribute to the debate in a less serious manner so for example I don't know whether you have seen Johnny English 2 it's a film that I, I come back uh, all the time it's, a, it's an English slash American British slash American production but it's about uh, Johnny English which is uh, Ron Atkinson continuing his Mr Bean character but as an agent and this particular episode is about his engagement with the Chinese premier. He was sent by the MI uh, for a mission because someone out there would like to uh, want to have a plot to assassinate this Chinese premier. But the UK government would like to take this assignment because they want to make a good gesture for potential collaboration with China. So Johnny English stupidly and clumsily took on the assignment and tried to protect the premier. So I think when debate about and discussion about international relations become very heated and serious and and, and sometimes antagonistic. A film like this can help us to relax a little bit and just sometimes see the fun side of it and just have a laugh, basically. And maybe some laughter or some more emotional engagement via film can help to create a more imaginative space for dialogue and conversation rather than being stuck in the binary or triangle positions that everyone feel they're stuck and they're just repeating their own language and, and so on and so forth. So I think that's the, I will use the word naughty because it is the naughty gap that I would like to facilitate because it's a bit more fun. In the end of the day, yes, we talk about politics, but we're all human beings. And watching a film can temporarily take us out of that very serious contest and, and have a chance for us to think from another perspective and maybe in other people's shoes 
and and I think that could contribute a little bit in my view, not necessarily to solve any problem as such, but um, at least to make things a bit more relaxed and creative in a way. And I think soft power in the end is not is not a threat. If I may make a comment, I mean the UK is very bad for its film diplomacy in China for decades. Uh, this is something I'm also working on. So the the organization that what we do is not just to introduce Chinese films to the UK, but also the other way around as well. So at the moment, we're trying to finalize the biggest British cinema showcase across the country in five cities. The cinema chain has already been, been confirmed. We're just um, waiting for potential sponsorship to come in. So the UK is very behind in terms of uh, film diplomacy practice either backed by British institution or by, by the private sector. Whereas the EU, they have been as an union and also as an inde- independent country like France, Germany, Hungary, Switzerland, Norway, or you name it, Spain, Germany. They have been having their national cinema showcase in China for more than five years, but there's no single one has been uh, done for the British cinema yet. So I don't think it's a threat. If you see the Chinese soft power as a threat, or if you see there is an increasing Chinese film being released in the UK as a threat, then then maybe some of the stakeholders need to reflect on their diplomacy or their cultural export, whether it's up the game or not. Not then why 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 not? And sometimes competition can be a good thing. Definitely China and the UK. I think there are many things are uh, they can learn from each other in the film parts uh, for sure, but in in other areas as well. So I think as long I mean as long as we think a competition becomes a threat, then the dialogue or the conver- and all the conversation is already limited because it's already an antagonistic and a defense mechanism rather than seeing that as a flirting potential. I mean, in a good way, intellectual flirts. <laughs> yeah, competition can definitely thrive performance when it comes to film diplomacy, it seems. And this engagement, particularly emotionally, can allow ourselves to, to distance ourselves from kind of this dogmatic black and white reactive attitude towards towards China. I think so. I believe so. But of course, the, the, the film that could work needs to start from that perspective as well. It cannot be a film starting to be, in, you know, with a Cold War mentality already, because that doesn't help with uh, distracting us from that. It should actually strengthen that. So anything that uh, problematized, in my view, in storytelling or aesthetics or whatever, problematize the binary position could be a potential good contribution. And what would you say on, on the Chinese side? What, what are the opportunities for kind of Chinese filmmaker to, to, to be able to, to also kind of have their cultural spirit stimulated in order to have create stories that appeal to an international audience and find kind of a common ground? I think maybe focusing on global issues could be a good one. Um, there's a director, Hong Kong director, in fact, but who has been making co-production with China for many years, was Stephen Chow, who is one of my favorite directors. I think he tried that before. So the next generation, for the, the new generation of filmmakers, the Chinese filmmakers, of course, they will have to make this main melody film, which is uh, the, what the policy focuses on at the, at, the, at the moment. But in order for Chinese films to travel further, I think they need to find a, uh, an issue that everyone or at least everyone can understand, rather than it's a nationalist issue. So something like global sustainability, which Stephen Chow tried, and the film was very successful, is called The Mermaid. I showed it at the King's College uh, last year for the China Week as part of the program. So that's about environmental issue. 
just about environment issues in China, but definitely about what China can do as a coming up player in terms of global sustainability. So I think global sustainability, this is one of the area, the direction that UK China Film Collapse trying to uh, advocate to in the Chinese film industry and potentially to come up with a white paper to suggest that perhaps film policy in China can give better support towards topics like that rather than just uh, the nationalistic films because I think global sustainability is an urgent topic and everyone should pay attention to and I think films like that either in documentary or feature form can travel further than uh, some of the films that they think could otherwise. Absolutely. And another example would be The Wandering Earth, yes. the, the 2019 Chinese film advocating for also international collaboration on on issues that are related to kind of natural event and natural disasters. So just shifting gears a little bit until relationships between China and the West and, and between China and majority world countries, especially when it comes to education, as it relates to the Belt and Road Initiative. Could you could you speak a little bit about kind of the Belt and Road Initiative, the expansion of its diplomatic network and, and how how would China's soft power strategy differ in the majority world countries from developed ones? So it's estimated that China will likely replace U.S. as an educational powerhouse in 2050, particularly providing educational opportunities to majority in rural countries as being the largest single provider of university scholarships to students from sub-Saharan Africa, for instance. What, what do you think are the opportunities for exchange through education and to, to kind of demonstrate civil links into in future opportunities to, to foster mutual understanding in these regions? I think they should have a different strategy for sure. And there's a big opportunity there. I don't think the Chinese government has taken it up yet because I think the Bell and Road Initiative is a very, very massive project. And in terms of, in terms of implementation, it takes a while for things to sink, sink in. But I think definitely they're a little bit behind, in my opinion, in practicing the state-led uh, soft power alongside the Bell and Road Initiative because I... I think film, again, it comes in, can be a very quick and direct way for the locals to understand the construction company for infrastructure, you know, who they are, what they like and what their culture is. Because at the moment, from what I know, is that they struggle with some of the locals for them to understand the management model, the culture uh, and so on. And, and I have been to some of the construction sites it's just because I'm interested in starting an open-air cinema there. But I think they do have some kind of programs to support that, you know, with a film, maybe film exhibition program along along with all the infrastructure development and, and something like that. But I don't think it has been sustainable. I don't think it's been sustained or it hasn't been like an ongoing program. So there's a, definitely a big gap there. And I don't think it can, it will, it will be a very big project if film does come in as a way to help people to understand the Chinese company better. So I think they need to work with multiple partners so they can't deliver that on their own. So they have to work with perhaps non-profit organization, local universities, perhaps some potential PR company, just so that they can use the, make the opportunities in, in a good use. But at the moment, I don't see anything like that as being developed yet alongside the Baron Road. So it's definitely not a threat yet. 
not even a competition. And just staying on kind of the topic of education and from your perspective as, as a professor yourself, what would be the opportunities for, for engagement in, in that sector with Western countries and particularly the UK? I think definitely the UK has taken more and more Chinese students uh, as international students. So when I was a student once upon a time myself, I was pos- possibly the only Chinese student in the program. But now you're talking about one master course, maybe 140 students in total with 90 students are being Chinese. So I think, I mean, the UK is very good at taking up the market opportunity. But I think, as Professor Ranamita said, I quote him also from Oxford University, he said that the what the UK can offer to China in terms of higher education is the greatest or the biggest liberation project on earth, which I agree, because I think myself is a very good product, because I it produced someone possibly can be a bit more pragmatic and balanced in, in, in views uh, and, and in career direction and so on. And the, when the number is so great, you don't know, you never know who will be the next potential. It can bring changes very quickly by the capacity. So there are many opportunities in terms of education in the UK for China, for the Chinese market. But one is urgently, I think no one is paying attention to, is a very specialized knowledge called studio management because the UK has been a supplier for Hollywood for many years, um, supporting all the great Hollywood films to be made. So the UK is very good in terms of studio facilities, management, providing talent via the studio setup. And that's why Hollywood and big new studio, not Hollywood like uh, Amazon and Netflix, they keep con- they continue to keep investing in studio facilities in the UK for that reason. Now, China has over hundreds, if not over a thousand studio facilities in China linked to very potential, full potential tourism package, you know, as a, as a des- tourism destination for the domestic market. But in terms of studio management, they're still very behind. So I think the UK has a very big talent pool uh, to offer to the Chinese market to train the next generation of studio managers uh, for the Chinese market in domestically and at the moment there's no single university or college or film school that is offering that specialized program to any students is that a program that you advocate for particularly within the uk or would that also be a possibility to have this in china as some kind of sister university and sister program it can be a sister program because i mean they have all the facility to use anyway uh, or the studios in China. So it can be a joint program, especially now we're very comfortable with uh, Zoom and Teams and Tencent meetings. It doesn't have to be in-person training either. And potentially we have the virtual 360 degree virtual cloud, virtual reality, all the technologies. I think it's, yeah, it's definitely a big area for if anyone's listening, potential entrepreneurs and investors to look into. So it, it seems even though soft power is abstract and include a lot of different indices and factors. It, it could play a critical role in, in foreign policy and public diplomacy and fostering mutual understanding and international collaboration. So I want to ask you about anything you'd like to share that you look forward to in the future for engagement and collaboration. Yes, I'm looking forward to the next Bruce Lee moment. And this is going to be an organic moment. It's not an state-led initiative, but potentially supported by a non-profit organization or a very passionate individual like myself 
So the next Bruce Lee moment will be I'm hoping to find or headhunt the next martial arts actress, uh, very young, uh, with a brand new choreography in martial arts. To become the next uh, global phenomenon. Great. So uh, adding a, a gender lens to uh, to China's soft power and to film diplomacy. But it has the moment has to be organic. It has to be bottom up. It, it cannot have an. It will not and cannot have any state interference because I know what the media will do. They just pick it up and and slaughter it. So it has to happen very organically, just like Irene Gu, just out of nowhere, and she's like the star for for a while. When you say organically, are are there some conditions um, and and prerequisites that 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 would need to be in place before before this happens to kind of have an idea of a, a time frame? So she has to she has to have the charisma as Bruce Lee. She has to be a bit younger. She has to know martial arts or has been training martial arts for a while as a child, and she has to speak Mandarin, Cantonese, and English fluently. And that's it. And she just has to have the screen uh, magic. To try and to try and transform the audience and to get everyone on her side, and she will become the hero for everybody, not just for any country, but anyone can identify her, um, you know, her heroic mission or identity. So it's for everybody, not just for the Chinese. Absolutely, that's a great silver lining. Thank you so much for coming today, and we were so honored to have you. Please come again soon. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Oxford Policy Pod. Today, we try to parse through some of the ways China exerts soft power in majority and minority world countries, and the opportunities and challenges of engaging with China in the context of its rise. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to Oxford Policy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at OxfordPolicyPod underscore and on Twitter at OxfordPolicyPod. The executive producers for the season of OPP are Reed Lesk and Lily Beha. This episode was produced by Elsa Katz, Reed Lesk, and Lily Beha. Our thanks again to Mr. Andrew Caney, Mrs. Zilly Wong, and Dr. Human Chan. Thanks for joining us.